Welcome to Bible Curious, where we explore the entire Bible from cover to cover, asking ourselves what is the Holy Bible, what claims does it make about God, and what message does it have for us today? Whether you are faithful or unfaithful, believing, unbelieving, or just plain curious, this series is for you. I'm Arthur Milliken, and today we will be completing the Gospel according to Matthew by reading chapters 27 and 28 from the World English Bible. You can find our reading plan at biblecurious.org forward slash plan. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 27, Introduction Betrayed by Judas, captured by hostile Jewish authorities, abandoned by his disciples, denied by Simon Peter, Jesus had finally set the scene for his greatest miracle yet, the salvation of all mankind. Because Judea was a vassal state under the emperor of Rome, Jewish leaders did not have the authority to execute capital punishment. For this, they needed to appeal to the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, and the only Roman crime which could be hung upon Jesus was the claim that he was a rival king to Emperor Tiberius. The irony, of course, being that the Jewish leaders had to admit that Jesus was their king in order to establish a capital crime against Rome. This chapter includes Jesus delivered to Pilate, Judas hangs himself, Jesus before Pilate, the crowd chooses Barabbas, Pilate washes his hands, the soldiers mock Jesus, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the guards at the tomb. Chapter 27 Now, when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him up to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, who betrayed him, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, felt remorse, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? You see to it. He threw down the pieces of silver in the sanctuary and departed. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is the price of blood. They took counsel and bought the potter's field with them to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him upon whom a price had been set, whom some of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, So you say. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how many things they testify against you? He gave him no answer not even one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the multitude one prisoner whom they desired. They had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? 
for he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. But the governor answered them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. But the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out exceedingly, saying, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that nothing was being gained, but rather that a disturbance was starting, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous person. You see to it. All the people answered, May his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But Jesus he flogged and delivered to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison together against him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They braided a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to go with them that he might carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine to drink mixed with gall. When he had tasted it, he would not drink. When they had crucified him, they divided his clothing among them, casting lots, and they sat and watched him there. They set up over his head the accusation against him written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two robbers crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders said, He saved others, but he can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross now and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers also who were crucified with him cast on him the same reproach. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them who stood there when they heard it said, This man is calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. The rest said, Let him be. 
Let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him watching Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were done were terrified, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee serving him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When evening had come, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was also Jesus' disciple, came. This man went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given up. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. Then he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. Now on the next day, which was the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees were gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest perhaps his disciples come at night and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone. In verse 61, Matthew's Gospel reads, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. The other Mary, of course, was the mother of Jesus. The following chapter also uses the phrase Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to describe this pair of women. Matthew's subtle use of language suggests that Mary Magdalene carries a special status, at least equal to that of Jesus' own mother, and only the Lord's wife now widow, would likely deserve such honor. Several major events occurred at the moment of Jesus' death. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. The veil of the temple was a heavy curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter and only once per year. By sundering this curtain, Yahweh was communicating to his people that this separation no longer applied, that the most holy place was relocating itself into the hearts of God's new covenant people who would later come to be known as Christians. The resurrection of the dead 
was a Jewish belief which arose from certain enigmatic prophecies from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, as well as accounts from the books of Kings, where the prophets Elijah and Elisha both resurrect the deceased sons of women in northern Israel. Jesus himself performed resurrections on multiple occasions during his ministry, but this particular account of many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep being raised and entering Jerusalem only appears in Matthew's gospel, and frankly, raises more questions than it answers. It's important to note that these saints are described as having fallen asleep, and many New Testament writers describe the death of believers in this way. Once you become a believer in Christ, you don't really die, you only fall asleep. The question then becomes, when does a believer typically wake up? One interpretation is that you don't wake up until the final resurrection at the last judgment, along with everyone who ever existed since the beginning of time. Another, more popular interpretation would be that you awaken immediately after you die in a discorporate spiritual body and are brought before either God's throne or a pair of pearly gates or somewhere where you can be appropriately judged, after which you are either admitted into heaven or condemned to hell, or if you're a Catholic, sentenced to purgatory. But the Bible simply doesn't support this interpretation, popular though it may be. A more logical interpretation would be that you simply wake up in your next life, with the details of your previous lives being lost in a fog of forgetfulness. However, as you awaken to consciousness of your soul's eternal existence, it becomes possible to recover fragments from these previous lives. While John the Baptist did not clearly remember his previous existence as Elijah the prophet, Jesus made it a point on more than one occasion to connect these two lives. And Matthew, being an observant student, was quick to pick up on these connections. After describing Judas Iscariot's guilt-ridden confrontation with the chief priests and elders, where he throws down the 30 pieces of silver which were paid to him for betraying Jesus, Matthew then makes a very strange scriptural reference to the prophet Jeremiah. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is the price of blood. They took counsel and bought the potter's field with them to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him upon whom a price had been set, whom some of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. What's so strange about this quotation is that Jeremiah didn't say it. It was the prophet Zechariah who lived almost a hundred years later. Also, the reference is a paraphrase and not a direct quotation. Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 to 13 state, I said to them, if you think it best, give me my wages, and if not, keep them. So they weighed for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Yahweh said to me, 
Throw it to the potter, the handsome price that I was valued at by them. I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter in Yahweh's house. Zechariah was speaking about a prophetic vision where he would break two shepherds' staffs named Unity and Favor, representing God's covenant relationship with the people of Israel and Judea. Judas Iscariot, who was named after the founding patriarch of the tribe of Judah, fulfilled this prophecy perfectly by betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver and breaking both unity and favor with the promised Messiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah did speak two prophecies which were related to this incident. The first comes from Jeremiah chapter 19, where Yahweh commands him to purchase a clay pot and then shatter it in front of the elders of Judea. This would represent the fate of the Jewish people who would be shattered by invading armies as judgment for their own wickedness. This was also the same prophecy where Jeremiah named the Valley of Gehenna, now known affectionately as Hell, as the place of final judgment. The second prophecy comes in Jeremiah chapter 32, where Yahweh instructs Jeremiah to purchase a field from his kinsmen for 17 shekels of silver, despite knowing that the Babylonian armies had already begun their siege of Jerusalem. The deed of this purchase would then be placed in a clay jar as testimony that the Jews would be restored to their homeland after their exile. A surface reading of Matthew chapter 27 would give us the impression that the apostle was a poor student of scripture who couldn't be bothered to look up his quotations for accuracy before releasing what would become arguably the most important document in human history. However, closer inspection shows that Matthew knew exactly what he was talking about. This potter's field, known as the field of blood where only foreigners could be buried, symbolized how the Jewish rejection of Jesus opened the gospel to non-Jewish foreigners who could come into covenant relationship with God via Jesus' own blood spilled from the cross. Matthew's so-called misquotation of the prophet Zechariah was a clarification, not a paraphrase, since Matthew could now see what Zechariah's vision was referring to. And the reason why Matthew called Zechariah the prophet Jeremiah was because he could now see that Zechariah was the reincarnated soul of Jeremiah in exactly the same way that John the Baptist was the reincarnated soul of the prophet Elijah. But it goes further than that. This same soul had also incarnated at other times in Israel's history, as the prophet Joel, as the prophet Isaiah, and finally, as Matthew the tax collector himself, apostle to Jesus Christ. The Gospel According to Matthew, Chapter 28 Introduction. Now that Jesus Christ was dead and buried, 
All that remained was to wait and see what would happen next. The resurrection of Christ was different from all other biblical accounts of raising the dead because not a single witness could testify directly to the resurrection itself. Only indirect testimony exists, from those who discovered the empty tomb, plus those who saw and interacted with the resurrected Christ. This chapter includes The Resurrection The Report of the Guards The Great Commission Chapter 28 Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from the sky and came and rolled away the stone from the door and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him the guards shook and became like dead men. The angel answered the woman, Don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just like he said. Come, see the place where the Lord was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! They came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers that they should go into Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and told the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a large amount of silver to the soldiers, saying, Say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and make you free of worry. So they took the money and did as they were told. This saying was spread abroad among the Jews and continues until today. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had sent them. When they saw him, they bowed down to him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. According to Matthew's account, it was the same Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who first encountered the risen Jesus, taking hold of his feet so that they could verify that he occupied a real physical body. At the same time, the elders and chief priests began circulating a rumor that Jesus' disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. For those listening who require more evidence before believing in the biblical account, I ask, how much more evidence do you require? Where exactly is that tipping point which would nudge you from unbelief into belief? 
One thing I learned from studying both the Old Testament and the New is that no amount of evidence will ever be enough to convince someone who does not want to believe. The problem does not lie in the evidence. The problem lies within the human heart. If the universe operates according to principles of justice, then every one of us must be held accountable for the evil within our own hearts. And who wants that accountability? How much easier it is to believe that death is the end, the great equalizer, the moment when our conscience, along with our entire existence, is wiped clean in the flames of oblivion. But this belief system also urges us toward the darkness because it says that we are not to be held accountable so long as we never get caught. Every honest seeker of truth eventually realizes that evil does exist in the world, and it has ancient roots. It is undeniable, and no amount of looking away, meditating, or positive thinking can make it disappear. One can seek for the good, and occasionally might find it, but goodness comes about with great courage and effort, and is generally the exception rather than the rule. Why is this? Hebrews 9.27 states, It is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. We know that to die in the New Testament means to come to the ultimate realization that all our human efforts are fruitless because they are all rooted in sin. It is the human soul which dies at this moment of realization. What then is the judgment which follows this spiritual death? This is answered in John 3.19. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. Once we realize that we are spiritually dead, our judgment follows to repent from our sins, to turn away from the darkness within our own hearts, to embrace a new reality based on light rather than darkness, and to live entirely based upon the cosmic law pronounced by Christ at the Sermon on the Mount, which can be summarized thus, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So why on earth was Jesus crucified? What exactly does his crucifixion mean? John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their works were evil. We crucify Jesus because we love darkness rather than the light for our works are evil. And why was Jesus resurrected? Why is it so critically important to believe in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead? Because with the resurrection, God demonstrated once and for all that death is not the end. Life is eternal. The law 
is eternal. Love, truth, justice, and light are all eternal principles and are all superior to death. If death had the final word, then cosmic law would mean nothing, and there would be no point in following the Bible or any other wisdom teaching. If we want the Bible to transform our thinking and renew our lives, we should begin with understanding that the Bible is true. It is not a product of wishful thinking. Actually, we may very well find ourselves wishing it said something different. My goal in studying the Bible has always been to seek truth, uncomfortable though it may be, and I have found that there is no authority in existence higher than the Holy Bible. It is a mistake to assume that the Bible is a work of fiction or symbolic allegory. These are historical documents, and they testify to real events, which actually happened, and it means something to know the truth. And it means something to know all of the truth, especially those truths which are not obvious from a surface reading. Why is it important to know that Yahweh and Mary produced a son named Jesus? And why is it important to know that Jesus and Mary Magdalene produce a child of their own? It's important because it would mean that God produced an actual bloodline. And that bloodline could very well still exist. After 2,000 years, such a bloodline might be found in millions, if not billions, of people today. Who knows? Maybe you are a literal, biological descendant of Jesus Christ himself. What would it mean for you if you discovered that were true? And why would it be important to understand that life extends beyond the physical body? Why would it be important to know that you've been here much longer than you think and that you'll still be here when we reach the end of the age? It's important because we must understand that our actions have consequences. And we cannot escape those consequences simply by dying. Maybe, thinking about heaven and hell in simplistic terms, what Catholics call the four last things, death, then judgment, then heaven or hell, might frighten some people into acting nicer to each other. But for too many of us, it just doesn't work. Because we know a fairy tale when we hear it. When Jesus asked John the Baptist to baptize him, John was confused. Why on earth would the Son of God need to be cleansed of sins? It's because the soul of Jesus still carried with him the sins of previous lives. A human life is not one thing, and it's not the other. It's a combination of both the body and the soul. Yahweh withheld his seed for 4,000 years because he needed to wait for the soul of man to mature to the point where he was capable of expressing the true purpose of God's cosmic law. 4,000 years earlier, God created the soul of man, of 
Adam. From Adam, he created Eve. And together, Adam and Eve multiplied this original twin soul until finally mankind filled the entire earth. However, we also know that this original twin soul was not perfect. With consciousness came free will. With free will came disobedience. With disobedience came sin. And with sin came death. And with the multiplication of sin came also the multiplication of death. And the multiplication of evil itself, personified as the devil, Satan. The original soul of Adam, born into the body of Jesus, son of Mary and of Yahweh himself, had mighty sandals to fill indeed. In order to reconcile himself and mankind with the Father, he had to confront his original sin and pay the price for this multiplication of evil which traced itself all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, and he had to do it willingly. All of the pain, brokenness, darkness, and evil which Adam brought into the world through his original rebellion against God would be returned back to him and born by the body which to God was the Son of Man, but to man was the Son of God. I believe that the Jews in Jerusalem recognized this unconsciously. They saw themselves in Jesus. They saw the spirit of Adam. They saw, in a moment, the man responsible for all of it. All the darkness. All the brokenness. All the suffering. And their only response was to scream from the top of their lungs. Crucify him. And Jesus took it all. The good news is that Jesus did this for a reason. It turns out that this principle of multiplication works in both directions. Through the blood of our ancestors, we inherit the original sin of Adam. But through the waters of baptism, we can inherit the original salvation of Christ. Romans 5.18 says, so then, as through one trespass all men were condemned, even so, through one act of righteousness, all men were justified to life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing gift of grace through your only begotten Son, the gift of salvation, the gift of fellowship with your children. Thank you for revealing to us your truth and for helping us to identify where we may have strayed away from your truth in our own hearts. I know that it is your desire to bring all people into your family. And may your will be accomplished in bringing your kingdom to fruition on earth. I know that I am not perfect, that I have sinned, and I know that with your help I can be redeemed from my mistakes. Father, please bring us out of the darkness and into the light. In Jesus' name we pray. So where do we go from here? We go back to the beginning, and we trace this 4,000-year journey from Adam to Christ. Because we know Jesus, we know Adam. 
and we can learn from his journey, walk in his sandals, and benefit from his mistakes. From the Last Supper, we learn that we can identify ourselves with something else, just as Jesus identified himself with a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. You may or may not have been present in Israel through their painful history, but with the gift of the Holy Spirit, you can transport yourself there through the Word of God given to us in the Bible, through the principle of substitutional atonement. Their history becomes our history, and we can transform ourselves by walking the path to salvation vicariously through the stories given to us in the Bible. Thank you for listening. If you've satisfied any of your Bible curiosity, please rate this series. If you have feedback, write a review. And if you are still curious for more, please smash that subscribe button so that we can send you timely updates. And join us for our next episode where we open the Old Testament, beginning with the first book of Moses commonly called Genesis. In the beginning, what on earth was God up to? Don't you want to know? This is Arthur Milliken saying good night and God bless.